State corrections officials are busy working on plans for shuttering two troubled juvenile prisons after Governor Walker announced the closures late last week. Walker's decision to close Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake came as a surprise to many. Despite lengthy probes into alleged mistreatment of inmates and inmate attacks on staff, Walker had been defending the corrections department and the facilities. So just why did the governor do an about-face on the juvenile prisons? WUWM's Marty Michelson asked that question of J.R. Ross of WestPolitics.com as part of today's Capital Notes conversation. Ross says the answer depends on who you believe. On the one hand, the governor's administration says that this has been the works for a year, that uh, they saw this as an opportunity to prove outcomes for everybody, from juveniles to the people who work at these facilities. Also as an opportunity that the state of Wisconsin uh, is running at or above capacity with its adult prison facilities. This creates an opportunity to retrofit the Lincoln Hills complex to house medium security adult offenders. So there are all kinds of pluses for Walker in doing this. The critics, he's trying to take a campaign issue off the table. Along with being up for re-election in November, there's a book coming out from former Corrections Secretary Ed Wall. Uh, I believe it's slated for a release around August. He's been taking shots at Governor Walker and Attorney General Brad Schimmel over their approach to Lincoln Hills. You know, it could be a little bit of both, a little bit of both what's good public policy and what's good politics for them as well. Meanwhile, Democratic Congressman Mark Polcan predicted last week that Foxconn and the state's $3 billion incentives package to lure the company here would be the demise of Governor Walker and other Republicans in the legislature this election year. He says they weren't paying attention during the months-long public debate and that more people oppose Foxconn than support it. And then recently, Assembly Minority Leader Gordon Hinn said he would make Foxconn the centerpiece of every legislative race this year. Is this a sign that Democrats are going to make this issue virtually their number one focus in their effort to oust Walker in 2018? I don't know that it's going to be number one, but what they're going to talk about is um, use it as a part of the argument of that Republicans and Governor Walker have you know, rigged the system against the average person, that here you have a foreign entity coming in and getting these, you know, billions of taxpayer dollars and all this aid to build a facility. Well, what about you? What have you gotten? You know, this is a rigged system. I mean, that, that's the language that we're hearing a lot from politicians today because they see a populist sentiment out there with voters who aren't real happy about some things. So they talk about things being rigged, stacked against you, and that might be part of the argument. Now, if you're in Racine County, That might be a hard argument to make, that Foxconn's a bad thing because you're seeing the possibility of jobs coming in to feed your family. But if you're in Eau Claire, La Crosse, um, Wausau, it becomes an easier argument to make because you're farther away from the facility. You're less likely to benefit from it. Now, Walker, part of the pitch he's been making is that you will see suppliers who will come in uh, who are already in Wisconsin, who are in other cities around Wisconsin, who will benefit from this. But that's still a little ways off to see real evidence of that if it does happen. So I get the impression they're definitely going to use it as part of the argument, but I don't know that's going to be the argument against Governor Walker that this election is going to be a referendum on Foxconn by itself. Well, speaking of the governor's race, Madison Mayor Paul Soglin is expected to formally announce this week that he'll join the field of Democrats running against Governor Walker in 2018. This could get interesting, as some people view Soglin as a rather flamboyant and notorious figure. About how many Democrats are in the race now, and what kind of a lane will Soglin carve out for himself? Well, it depends on how you define in the race. I mean, we've got, I think, last time I checked, like maybe 17 
18 people who registered as Democrats with the state. Now, there's a big difference between registering to run and actually qualifying for the ballot. You have to turn in at least 2,000 signatures from state residents uh, by June 1st, a maximum of 4,000 signatures. You have to file a, a statement of economic interest. So there are hurdles across that some of these folks who have filed aren't going to cross. But looking at, you know, the field, well, you know, half a dozen, eight, nine, can't people are paying attention to? And then you kind of break it down more and who is going to be a credible candidate. Well, we'll probably know more in a couple of weeks. We'll see some campaign finance reports from uh, those in the race that'll show us how they did during the second half of 2017. I'll give us an idea of who's really viable financially at this point, who's raising money. That'll give us an idea of who truly, really, really is in the race. Now, with Soglin, the question kind of becomes, you know, like you said, what lane will they have? We talk in politics about lanes in a race, you know, just like an track meet. Uh, for Soglin, you know, you think, okay, here's a guy from Dane County, which is one of the population centers of the state. Um, there are three counties in Wisconsin that produce about 40, 45% of the votes in the Democratic primary statewide. They're Milwaukee, Dane, and, and Waukesha counties. So, okay, he's from Dane County. That should help Soglin, right? You know, but in politics, in Madison, politics is kind of a blood sport. So, Soglin has definitely has his fans in Madison, as well known in Dane County, but he's also angered a lot of people in, in Madison and Dane County because he's been here for, as mayor, off and on for 40 years. So that's not necessarily a great thing for him. And then you start looking at the other candidate, Tony Evers. He lives in Madison. Kelda Roy's, she's in Madison. So you're seeing a splitting of the Dane County vote. There are multiple candidates who have constituency in Dane County. They might split that vote up some more. It, so it's hard to tell exactly where he fits in. He's also another um, Caucasian uh, elected official who's 58 or older. You have a lot of those in the race. You know, how are they? There are all kinds of factors yet to figure out where these guys fit. And quite frankly, I'm looking at the money right now to see, uh, to help divvy up where people fit. I know people hate money in politics, but it helps tell us who's viable because you can't do doors in a state with 3.2 or so million registered voters in a race like this. You have to have money to do messages on digital ads, radio, TV, and it tells us who's who's building a campaign for that's for real. Also, um, Walker was quick to attack Soglin on Twitter for his presentation of a key to the city of Madison to the late Cuban President Fidel Castro in 1975 during Soglin's first stint as Madison mayor. Soglin defended himself, saying his trips to Cuba taught him a lot about communication and understanding. So why is Walker making this an early flashpoint in the campaign? And how might voters view Soglin's cozying up to Fidel Castro many years ago? The Castro thing, I really don't know. I, I don't know how to gauge that right now. I haven't seen any polling on it. I don't, I, I don't know how that plays with people in 2018, um, to tell you the truth. But with Walker, I mean, probably a couple of things. One, um, anytime you can start framing your your opponents, it's a good thing for you, you know, to have people talking about the Castro thing, to kind of be... Make sure it's mentioned in stories about people who might be upset about it. Um, two, it jazzes up his base. I mean, you know, Walker is relying on a conservative base to uh, turn out for him in November to give him con- campaign contributions between now and and then, and you know, to be excited about his candidacy and how better to jazz up the base and say, hey, here's somebody that does things that you don't like. Uh, it's kind of politics one on one in that regard. 
Moving on to another big race, Republican Senate candidates Leah Vukmir and Kevin Nicholson say they will both sign a unity pledge, meaning whoever loses the primary will immediately get behind the winner in the effort to unseat Democrat Tammy Baldwin in November. Why is a pledge like this important? Well, I think I get the impression that some of the kind of quick coverage of or the easy coverage of that pledge was that, oh, these guys are pledging to be nice to each other, and then look, they're already arguing a couple hours later. That's not really what it's about. The Republican Party of Wisconsin put that pledge out there because they wanted these guys that once this primary is over, and they know it's going to be contentious, that the loser will back the winner. They're not trying to police behavior between now and August. They're going to leave that to the voters. The second thing is there's an endorsement vote at the state party convention in May this year. If any candidate statewide race gets 60% of the vote, the delegates who are there um, and voting, they'll get the party's endorsement. With that comes access to party vote donor lists, party infrastructure, party staff. That could be a big boom for somebody. So the party wants to ensure that these guys play by the rules of their endorsement process because they've had contentious ones in the past that people try to monkey with things. They want to make sure it doesn't happen again, and that's kind of a for the party, a safeguard against this happening is having these guys pledge that they'll play by the rules. One more election to talk about. Last week, the slate of candidates running for an open seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, created by the retirement of Justice Michael Gableman, was finalized. The candidates are Milwaukee County Circuit Judge Rebecca Dollett, Sauk County Circuit Judge Michael Screenock, and Madison Attorney Tim Burns. They'll run in a primary next month, and the top two will advance to the April general election. How will these candidates distinguish themselves? And even though judicial races are officially nonpartisan, are some candidates viewed as more conservative and are others viewed as moderate or liberal? Well, what's interesting is we have kind of two competing forces at play in this primary right now. In Wisconsin, we typically, I stress typically, voters like candidates for the Supreme Court who have experience as a judge. Um, Tim Burns, Milton attorney, does not have that experience. Rebecca Dallet from Milwaukee and Michael Schronick from Sauk County do. We also have seen three-way primaries and nonpartisan races in which you have a more conservative candidate, which Schronick is that, a progressive candidate, which is Burns, and somebody being a little bit more of a moderate. Uh, Dallas kind of running a little left of center. That happened in 2016, the Supreme Court race, where we had conservative justice, Rebecca Bradley, um, progressive uh, Fourth District Court of Appeals Judge Joanne Kloppenberg, and then Joe Donald, the Milwaukee judge, who kind of ran it down the middle. Joe Donald got about 10% of the vote at primary. So we tend to, as voters in Wisconsin, in these low turnout spring primaries, you know, the most partisan people are turning out. So we gravitate toward the most liberal, the most conservative person in those races. But we also like people who have judicial experience, the Supreme Court. So which one's going to win out, you know, come February? Burns is also running as an unabashed progressive. He's being very out there about his politics. Uh, traditionally in Wisconsin, we see candidates of the court shy away from that, talk more about judicial philosophies and kind of generic terms and stay away from being too specific about things. Burns is saying no. He, he thinks voters deserve to have insight into his political views. He said they won't affect his his actions on the court, but they need to know that there's there's this fake veneer to him of impartiality that the judges, judicial counsel really are partisan. They have political views. Now, Dallet and Trunk, their campaigns have been critical of Burns, saying that he is going too far, that he's setting himself up to have questions raised about whether he could be an impartial 
um, justice on the court, and that he's something like a candidate for the legislature than he is for the Supreme Court. We'll see how that plays out, but it's very much a different tack than we're used to. And what Burns is counting on is that dynamic in the primary of the base of the base turns out. Our most partisan voters, our most committed voters turn out, that he's believing that progressives are excited to turn out because of um, what's happening nationally, and that's going to benefit him in the primary.